Thank you for joining this evening for Basic Buddhist Teachings. As I said last week, I'm going to be giving a, a three-week series of talks through the end of the month, and tonight's uh, night two in talking about the four reminders. Last week, we talked about the first reminder. We, we looked at that, and the first reminder is that reminder of our precious human birth and the way in which we recite it here is first contemplate the preciousness of being free and well-favored, difficult to gain, easy to lose. Now we must do something meaningful. The second reminder, which we are going to look at tonight, is on impermanence or anicca, which is one of the three marks or four marks of existence that the Buddha laid forward, put forward. And the second reminder goes, second, the world and its inhabitants are impermanent. In particular, the life of beings is like a bubble. Death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. At that time, the Dharma will be my only help. I must practice it with exertion. So we start out with birth, and we immediately jump into death. And this contemplation, the second reminder of impermanence, is one that we like to consider consider intellectually or conceptually. It's it's fun. It's almost flashy to talk about nothing lasts, everything's impermanent. But in actuality, it's an incredibly painful reminder. Because although we recognize that nothing lasts, we recognize that things uh, inevitably must come apart. Uh, that's still contrary to what we would like. We are still in a perpetual state of grasping in the most uh, basic sense, material goods, grasping. We don't want our precious items to go away, uh, enjoyable experiences, and perhaps most threatening and sometimes the hardest to consider uh, the life. This body will be a corpse that we are going to die. And that's something that none of us want to consider. And those of us that try to consider it, it's difficult because especially, particularly if you're, if you're very healthy and you're doing well, it's, it's almost out of the realm of thought. And when we think about it, it really doesn't have any tangibility to it. I know I'm going to die. Yes, death is coming. Uh, Rumi has started asking about death, um, talking about graveyards when we see those and how people get burnt up cremated and he's curious about it he's thinking about it he hasn't come to many conclusions about it but as the second reminder says death comes without warning so right now most of us are planning what we're going to do tomorrow we're planning what we're going to do next week we may have an idea of what we'd like to do over the next five years or ten years or however long we have and it's completely in the face of this idea that death comes without warning that the only place to train one's mind is immediately, is, is right in the situation we're in. I'll practice tomorrow. I'll practice next week. When, once I'm in this stage in my life, then I will look at what this is with no idea if we'll ever reach that stage. And even if we do, we've, if we have the longevity to reach that stage, will we have the same access to the teachings? Will we have access to the teacher? Will we have... Uh, a world in which we can still come together and practice the Dharma together. So death comes without warning. This body will be a corpse. At that time, the Dharma will be my only help. 
I must practice it with exertion. And these last two lines I've been contemplating fairly thoroughly because uh, that line, the Dharma will be my only help, something about it is difficult for me. And I think we want to homogenize our experience so much. We want everything to be on an equal level playing field and we don't want to become too stuck on the dharma well everyone has that chance everyone has that opportunity and, and perhaps they do but this is an incredibly rich vehicle the dharma and so when we say the dharma will be my only help it's that opportunity to train the mind it's how closely we've looked at consciousness and we've learned to or we've strengthened the awareness itself to receive what is arising because we don't recognize perhaps how heavily our consciousness is mitigated through the sense fields that we're actually able to slow down our experience through the sense fields and when those sense fields dissolve at the moment of death First of all, we have no idea what's going to happen. I can't say that I do. But in contemplating that, the immediacy becomes even more intense. The separation uh, is more difficult to maintain. And so the tendency to be swallowed up by the habituated thought patterns uh, is, is a frightening prospect. And dreaming is, to me, uh, often talked about in tandem with death. And we see how little say-so we have over our dream experience, how the thoughts are, are nearly unmitigated, the bizarreness, the spontaneity of the experience in a dream. And to just even reflect if that possibility happens at the moment of death, where we're no longer to stabilize ourselves through the sense fields, but we are right in the winds of our eighth consciousness. We're right in the winds of our conditioning, how intense that could be. And so when it says the Dharma will be my only help, we should not minimize how powerful the vehicle of the Dharma is. And that opportunity to train our mind in such a direct way that at the moment of death, if we continue to prioritize the awareness itself, we've practiced over and over and over, not grasping, not rejecting, not looking away, so that when whatever intensity arises, which may or may not arise, our first and foremost situation is the awareness. Especially if we know that there's probably going to be some fear at the time of death. Fear is very, very powerful. Fear, if we were to mirror that with dreams, would be nightmares. Um, for most of us, the, the, the stuff of nightmares has changed over time. It's not like Rumi, if he sees something too frightening before bed, he's going to dream about it. But our fears aren't all that different. They just feel more practical. They're more reasonable fears. So the Dharma will be my only help. I must practice it with exertion. The relative expression of that to practice with exertion would be very intentionally training one's mind through the practice of meditation, 
through instruction from the teacher, through studying the Dharma, through coming together as Sangha. I feel that as aspiring bodhisattvas, which whether that bow has been received formally or informally, that if you're gathering in this space together, there's some connection to that bodhisattva bow. There's some resonance with being of benefit to others that are practicing with exertion while it needs to have strong roots in our meditation practice, we are also not limited or confined simply to the traditional forms of mind training, that we begin to have a similar curiosity in all aspects of our life. That meditation is not a shell that we create, a protection we create, and we just live inside of that, and that's where the exertion happens, although that is probably the starting ground for most of us. But that curiosity, that consideration, that awareness uh, is not separate from anything we relate to on a daily basis. So if we look at the idea of impermanence, the second reminder, and we look at the idea of death comes without warning, this body will be a corpse. It's not just that we're going to sink down into a state of meditation when things are coming to an end, but we hopefully have had some intention to train the mind in such a way that whatever shows up the fear, the uncertainty, the excitement, the confusion, that we're going to look at it. The Tibetans um, are much more direct and elaborate in their descriptions of death, uh, insofar as they will actually prescribe the first 49 days after death. And the six yogas of Naropa, traditional teaching, that actually probably came from Naropa's teacher, Talopa, talks about the opportunity for realization at this moment of death. And I can only speak to it in an intellectual sense in what I have read, but the idea there is that that is, that is the immediacy of Buddha nature without any add-ons. But because of the fear, we don't recognize it. And I think it actually goes on every seven days. There's another chance to see that or to work with your rebirth. And so, as I said, it becomes very, very detailed um, looking at the Tibetan Book of, uh, of the Dead or any of the other texts on the bardos. And that may be fascinating, but to me, the opportunity to practice for the moment of death or just in a general sense to practice with impermanence is not something we need to wait for. It's not something we need to wait for the conditions to arise to practice in such a way, because the very practice of Shikantaza, you could say, is the practice for the moment of death. And it's the practice for the moment of life and the practice for the moment of peace and the practice for the moment of warfare, because Shikantaza, again, is not confined or is not propped up simply by the conditions in which we practice. It is the practice itself. And so these four reminders are intended not as something to necessarily enact, although we talked about last week how Sokazan may encourage his students to recite these on a daily basis. And as he did, uh, first thing upon waking up before he, he even opened his eyes to recite these four reminders, but they are an opportunity for us to turn our minds towards the Dharma, towards our intention to see the truth. We start out by just acknowledging how rare it is to have an opportunity to train one's mind, how rare it is to come across a community or a teaching or a teacher that empowers us to look. 
And then the second reminder, you could say points at some urgency because we don't know how long this precious opportunity will be ours. We, we do not know for certain where we came from or where we're going, but in this moment, we have an opportunity to practice. Next week, I'll talk a little bit more about the second or the third and fourth reminders, which are the reminders of karma and suffering itself. But I think that's what I'd like to talk about tonight is just to see if there's any questions around uh, the second reminder of impermanence, or even if there's questions going back to last week and the talk about a precious human birth. Um, Susan Bowen. Yes. Uh, Chiazan, you use that word, and I, I've certainly heard it before, to contemplate. What, what exactly does contemplate mean? It sounds like obsess to me or perseverate, but I don't, I don't think that's right. Thank you. Bowing. Thank you. I, I agree. I don't think it's an obsession at all, but it could be a careful consideration of what is being pointed at. And so the way it's been talked about by Sokazan is that you may take these four reminders and go very slowly and take them word by word. Second, the world and its inhabitants are impermanent. So what does that mean? What is the world? What are, what is, uh, what are the inhabitants of the world? They're impermanent. And so you could go very slowly through those. And another way would be to go through it very fast, where you're not even necessarily hooking up the conceptual apparatus, but you're just going through and reciting and reciting and reciting. So I, I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't get become too fixated where you become neurotic about looking at these, but they may resonate for some in such a way where they really want to take a closer look. If you look at Buddhism, um, impermanence, karma, suffering are, are pretty key aspects of, of helping us look at our life and our surroundings. So it may be worth investigating. Andy. Andy Bowen. Uh, I'm particularly drawn to the image of life being like a bubble. Um, and I'm wondering beyond just the image of bubble just being able to pop, um, you know, what else is in that metaphor? I can make some stuff up. Sure. <laughs> I think what you pointed to is probably the first image most of us have is that this body in some ways is very resilient, in other ways uh, is incredibly fragile and soft and death does not need to be a long drawn out thing that it can come immediately. Perhaps in your life, I'm sure, and in others' lives, we we go to bed with somebody in our life one day and the next day that body is, is gone. Um, it's also ephemeral. In a sense, a bubble is very, it's, it's, it's transparent. It's very, it has very little substance to it. And yet we grasp at it as if it were concrete. It had, some sort of weight to it so we could look at it in that way too just the material is so um i, I think that word ephemeral is, is really workable in that situation is there any way that it shows up for you the bubble image uh i don't know it, it seems to change over when, when i think about it and nothing's coming up to me 
That's contemplation. Because I don't know, but you can continue to return to that image and every day something new may happen. And what's really fun or a little bit funny is when one day something incredibly feeling feels very profound, like, oh, the bubble. And then the next day you go to tell somebody about it and you just feel really, it's like, oh, it doesn't really work. So you keep, you keep contemplating. That's happened with me countless times where I think I've stumbled across something profound and it's just a really seductive illusion because it falls pretty flat after a little while. When you're bowing, so the Dharma will be my only help. What Dharma bowing? It really depends on how you're approaching this. And so I like to look at the intention that Sokuzan gave to me around this class, basic Buddhist teachings, trying to look at um, both just like talking about the Dharma, but going into maybe some of the history. And so if we look at different approaches to the time of death and impermanence, the Dharma for some would be the recitation of Amitabha's name. That's something I've I've read pretty continuously that even in the Tibetan tradition, there's a strong encouragement to recite the name of Amitabha at the time of death to be reborn into the land of Sukhavati, the pure land of Sukhavati, where enlightenment is effortless. For some, the Dharma is simply the way I understand what we're doing is training the mind to see clearly. For others, it may be in a more elaborate visualization of the, the incredible, overwhelming light that will present itself to you at the moment of death, which you may have a willingness to not separate yourself from or that you will, which will lead to another rebirth. So I don't know that I can set up what that means for each individual, although my feeling here is that Sokazan talks about it in a much more immediate sense, a less abstract sense. And that's not to say that it has a lot of specifics. It's not abstract in the sense of he's saying, see it, see it, sit down, train your mind, see it for yourself so that you have no, no uh, questions anymore. You're without fear. Um, but again, going into just maybe some of the historical aspects, the Dharma and the way impermanence is related to, particularly at death, is, is quite diverse. I've been, I've been looking at this book called Living is Dying by Zong Sar Kense. Rinpoche, who has a very traditional uh, Tibetan approach to the moment of death. So cultivating bodhicitta is something he's encouraging at the moment of death or leading up to the time of death or taking refuge. Um, I, I'll read just a brief paragraph that stood out to me that may or may not resonate. And this is actually from... Um, Zangsar's teacher, uh, Dogo Kense Rinpoche, and he says, whenever you think I am dying, visualize the guru, Lord of sages on the crown of your head and generate intense faith. faith. Then think, it is not only me. All sentient beings are subject to the law of death. No one is exempt. Although we have repeatedly undergone countless births and deaths here in samsara, we have only ever known the suffering of death and all these births have been entirely devoid of meaning. But now I will make sure that this present death of mine is meaningful. And so that's another way of the visualization of the teacher, the guru, the, the embodiment, the archetype of, of realization uh, is another way of, of invoking the Dharma 
in a way that may resonate on a, a far deeper level than just conceptually, depending on your relationship to the student-teacher relationship. So, Karen. So, Karen, how does the Nietzsche show up in emotions? I, in a pretty direct way in that emotions don't last that it's interesting even those um deep-seated emotions that are recurring that the trigger changes but we still have the same response they're still not quite the same emotion they're still very situational so to endeavor to look at something like emotions with the intention not to uh, buy into the three poisons of pushing, pulling, or looking away, but to actually watch the way in which the emotion can grow in intensity and burn and may even sustain itself for a time, but then it slowly begins to fade away. And some of us have really intense experience where there's almost a panic around our emotions. We have to do something. And then maybe as quickly as an hour or two later, it's like, oh yeah, I'm okay. So just looking at those emotions and how uh, they, they can't last. Even, even if you try to maintain them, they, they can't last. The grand line, uh, is it more, is it, is, is there an emphasis on studying the arising of something more so than the passing away? Um, I do not feel that that is the case. And again, that is going to take on a very personal quality. I would not emphasize the arising or the passing away to, to me the way I understand how this is being presented is the only thing you need to emphasize is that which is emphasizing itself so however it's showing up if you see it in the moment of arising that's where you watch it if you see it as it's passing away that's where you watch it I, I feel very strongly about that idea that awareness itself is not necessarily concerned with the content it doesn't even have a linear tracking to it so the way in which it shows up is the way to look at it conceptually we may talk about it more in those early phases as it's arising if we talk about the 12 links on the chain of dependent origin origination Sokazan emphasizes that link between desire and grasping and so there is there is something to that when we can begin to see the impulse to grasp but it hasn't quite locked down yet that that's uh, an opportunity for us to look at how strong that emotion, that impulse becomes, but not necessarily place our demands on the world. But that being said, if it's already um, solidified into grasping, don't try to go back. Don't try to deconstruct it. Look at it as grasping. Is there more in that? Thank you. How does the ending go with the Dharma is mine? Uh, the Dharma will be my only help and must practice it with exertion. Is this, um, is this kind of like a final grasping? That, um, as in grasping onto the Dharma at the moment of death? It may be. It could definitely show up that way for anybody but I also don't want to, because I have to just talk about my impulse or tendency around that. For some reason, I wanted to find a way to soften that statement. 
And I think it was more out of fear than recognition that no, at the moment of death, the time I've spent training my mind is what is going to be of most benefit to transition more so than there, nothing here can, can come with you. Probably uh, unless you have uh, your teacher right at your side, there's very few people that are going to be able to do much because they're going to be so focused on themselves. So although I still have that impulse to minimize or soften that statement, I, I still want to look very closely at that because I think there's something to that, that despite for me, it feels threatening that there's something too that the Dharma is going to be what I need to, to work with so that I can have um, as much clarity as possible when this body transitions. You guys, this makes me wonder um, now, is it, how important is it to have something to grasp when we're very afraid? I think it can provide a tremendous amount of support to have some sort of reference point in the moment of death. If we've not seen what this is for ourselves, you could say, to have some sort of form or structure that gives us some inspiration. And I think that's what the Dharma does for a lot of us. We may not understand it thoroughly, but it does provide inspiration that I'm going to do this. I'm going to look at this. I'm going to be with this to the best of my ability. So I do feel that those forms at the moment of death can be incredibly important. And I can only speak of it on the side of recently having watched my mother pass. Those forms were very important for me. I don't, I don't know if they were important for her. She seemed to do pretty well. But it provided a way to not abandon the situation when every impulse is, this is so painful, I don't want to be with it anymore. And I was very surprised and not to get too personal about this, but my mother passed about two years ago at home and we were with her and she was unconscious for a few days. And um, <laughs> my family is very peculiar and we don't like to look at things. And so my dad was playing like polka music, like, um, like weird Al Yankovic style polka music. And it was just a very strange thing. And no one wanted to acknowledge that my mom is lying in a hospital bed dying in our living room. But at the moment she died, nobody knew what to do. And so I put on my okesa and I said, I'd like to say a few prayers for her. And everyone completely sucked into that situation, came together in such a way that no one in my family has ever been to a Buddhist service. They've never asked me about being a monk. They have no interest in Sokazan other than they appreciate what he's done for me. But here's a form that they're unfamiliar with. They're not going to pursue otherwise, but they found support because it provided some sort of direction for the mind to go in a situation that no one really knew what to do with. And so if that's any, uh, if there's any resonance with that and the person dying, we may find that we may not know what to do at the moment of death. But if we've been practicing something for years and years, it may give us a little bit of inspiration to to be in the situation as opposed to fight the situation. Yu Hongbaoying, you just mentioned that the word, the only help, you mentioned that um, somehow for you is you want to soften. That's how I uh, understood from what you said. I resonate with that when you say soften part 
um, can I can I say this way to help me maybe soften instead of the only word I will say <clears throat> I will say that that's the Buddha nature is the only thing that I have left is that a is that a, does that work both like I, I just don't know whether it's the same Buddha nature and all, also the Dharma is the only help um, I appreciate you asking, um, and all I can say is that there's really no way for me to respond to that because of how how you resonate with that is there's no way for me to come in and say, oh, no, that, that's not the correct way to say that, or oh, absolutely, you you don't need my approval in that area. I know for, for me, I have to just look closer at that impulse to soften because I don't think it's necessary. I don't think I need to modify that statement at all, but to just look at the the discomfort around such a strong statement at the time of death, the Dharma will be my only help. And to just come back to that idea of contemplation, that's one that you could, I will continue to consider on what that means. But again, it's very personal. I know I read to my my mother a little bit of, out of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, and I, I modified some of the words that would be familiar with her. I didn't use you know, Dakinis and Dharmapalas. I used angels. She loved angels. So there's some of that, but it, it happens very situationally. I also asked her permission. I, I made sure I asked her before she passed if this if these things would be okay. Because if she had said no, there's there's no way I would have um uh, done that. Thank you. I think I really want to ask. It's not ask the answer for, for you to me. I think I'm asking whether my understanding of using Buddha nature is actable as uh, Dharma is the only help, is as it's a similar meaning if I use if I use Buddha nature as the only thing left. I'm just wondering, I don't want to misunderstand the the teaching. That's why I think of the Buddha nature. I'm not sure. Whether um, you understand my asking. It, that that might uh, work. I think of the Dharma as, um, in some ways, at least the way it's being expressed there is the path that our practices, our, our returning to the practices is, is the support we have at the moment of death. But I, I don't think I would discount what you're saying, um, although I don't know that they're entirely synonymous in this case. Thank you, Pauli. Thank you. Isan. Isan, um, my question comes from wondering about this little mammal brain that we have that is so powerful that we, we don't we don't want to die. I mean, it's more it's the most terrifying thing, or can be, you know, if if it's sudden or if it's so how can the Dharma support us? when death is so sudden in an, in the event that death is so sudden and immense that the storm just wants to sweep us away. I think it's probably going to depend, but to, to me, it's if there's an aspect of the path that we find a lot of inspiration from. So again, that may be the teacher. It may be the three jewels. It may be a practice. It may be a verse. 
one that doesn't discard the fear, but it gives us some sort of inspiration that we want to intend to be with that fear. Um, and so that's why I think Kensei Rinpoche is saying, visualize the guru on top of your head, or these teachings are saying, call to mind Amitabha or, or Tara or Padmasambhava, um, take refuge, uh, cultivate bodhicitta, that we don't have any probably don't have any say-so over whether fear arises or not, but in the midst of that fear, if we can bring our mind back to our intention, which is what Sokazan is encouraging on a near daily basis at this point, to come back to that intention around the vow and the practice. The, the fear is not something we have to get rid of in order to, to relate to impermanence or that Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Further questions this evening? Ondo. Ondo In the sadhana, um, I think it describes Mikio Dorje as holding a uh, sword with one hand and a skull cup of the Dharma next to his breast. Are you familiar with that invention? Um, what is that? Usually hold with Amrita. Okay. Which could be the Dharma, could be that that medicine, that um, soothing elixir of immortality. Is it? I guess. What are you asking specifically around Mikio Dorje? I was just thinking of that, you know, holding the Dharma close, uh, and so if it's Amrita, maybe that doesn't necessarily apply. But uh, that's an image for me. That uh, would maybe be something that would arouse bodhicitta. Sure. At the at the time of death, holding the dharma next to my breast, so to speak, you know, right close. Yeah. That's another good point, though, the images that may be supportive. I know when Rumi was born, we made sure to bring in, we brought the Jizo uh, Rupa from the Kaisando here in the Zendo, and we, we brought a medicine Buddha with us. Just there's something about that helped. I, I know Sokaran and Shoka probably had some uh, rupas or something dharmic in the in the space. So at the time of death, you may, yeah, you may want to die next to an altar. You may want to, uh, you know, die next to uh, images of your teacher or images of, of Buddhas and Bodhisattvas. Again, just there's no way to, to prescribe that because for some people, Bodhisattvas as images don't really resonate it's too too theistic in their minds but uh for others that's going to provide a lot of comfort i know senshu feels a, a really strong resonance with jizo bodhisattva it's something she really likes to have around i do too thank you oh susan bowing yes susan um on you know, you said everyone dies, no one escapes, but did you do you include Trump in that statement, or do you think he is like an outlier? Bowing. <laughs> yeah, he'll, he'll the the spaceship will come take him back to his home planet. <laughs> you know what's interesting and I still don't know how I feel about Zangsar Kensei Rinpoche. I've been talking to Sokazan about him. Sokazan met him in the late 80s. And 
Zongsar is a contrarian and a devil's advocate as if the devil needed one. And so he, he, he actually brings up Donald Trump a few times in this book, which is kind of uh, funny. Yeah, Donald Trump's going to die. As will I, as will I. Thank you for that. Susan Bowing, thank you. Now I can sleep peacefully, I guess, tonight. <laughs> Secret Service is going to bust in here. Any threats. <laughs> Six more viewers on there. <laughs> Um, have you run across Tibetan instructions on how to treat a, a body shortly after death? I have, but I, I, I can't call them to mind immediately. There's a section in here on treating the body after death. We've done a little bit of that with um, Kozan's help, um, washing washing the body. And uh, I think the thing that Sokozan's emphasized is chanting the Heart Sutra, which is pretty common to just to chant the Heart Sutra as uh, near to the time of death as possible. I know for me, that mantra at the end of the Heart Sutra is pretty powerful. It's something, even though we pronounce it wrong, according to Chisho, even, well, however you pronounce it, I, I resonate pretty heavily with that. So there are instructions. That's not something we need to adhere to. You really have to relate to the individual and what they would like. Yes. I was actually thinking about animals and pets also who sure. can't really tell you what they want. Um, I ran across the Tibetan teacher that emphasized not disturbing the body for a period of time. Is that is that something you've run across or is there yes. variety in that? Yes, and that's something Sokozan has said as well. Leave, leave uh, whatever body remains as, as long as possible undisturbed. There's a lot of laws around around bodies these days um, to go into the technical side of it. If you die in hospice at home, there's a lot more space. Body can be allowed to rest for hours before it has to be taken into custody by the funeral director. Um, but if you're at a hospital, they might give you 10 minutes or 20 minutes. And then they say, well, we've got to take you down to the morgue. But yes, I think there's something to that particularly if the consciousness doesn't recognize that the body's passed. And so, uh, yeah, that's something I know Sokozan has mentioned on many occasions, and that's something you find traditionally that you would want to leave the body undisturbed for as long as possible. And even in the most traditional sense, um, in Tibet, the body wouldn't be cremated for 49 days. You'd actually, the, yes, you wouldn't cremate until for 49 days, whereas here, I believe if you don't embalm, you have 48 hours to cremate a body or bury it. So it has to happen pretty quickly. In Crestone, Colorado, you can still have an open air cremation. It's the only place in the country where you can cremate a body if you want to go to Crestone. Any other questions this evening? And I'd like to, again, extend my appreciation for all of you to share your practice and your questions with me.